Amen. Good scripture. Thank you, Abby, for reading that scripture. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Uh, I think that's the biggest worship team I've seen in the last few months, and they're just so full of energy. Uh, it's exciting to have people to worship the Lord together with. Um, welcome. If you're here live, we're excited that you're here. If you're joining us online, we're, exciting that, we're excited that you're joining us online and that you've invited us into your living room. So thank you for that. We've been going all summer through the books of First and Second Peter here at Hillcrest, and uh, today is no different. We're in Second Peter chapter one, and uh, the books of First and Second Peter, both of them were written addressing a threat. Uh, something was uh, not good, and in First Peter, the threat was persecution. So it was a threat from outside the church. There was a government that was sort of hostile towards Christians, and then there was lots of people misunderstanding what Christians believed, and so that was the threat, was outside the church, they were experiencing suffering and persecution, and they were trying to figure out how do we partner with God in this experience of suffering and persecution and, um, in order to honor God and, and live as Christians. The book of 2 Peter, the threat is not from outside the church, it's actually from inside the church. And I wanted you to really have a broader um, understanding of the book of 2 Peter. Daisy did a really great job last week of getting us started in the book, but I thought it would be a great thing since this week, next week, and the week after are all focusing on the threat. And so I thought, let's watch a video that gives us a big overview, and when I come back, I'm going to ask you here live or here at home, to tell me what is the threat Peter was writing to deal with. Okay, let's watch this video. The second letter of Peter. It's addressed to the same network of churches as Peter's first letter, and it's likely written from the same location in Rome. Peter's become aware of the fact that he's going to die soon, and the evidence that we have from early tradition was that Peter was executed by the Roman authorities during the reign of Emperor Nero. And so this letter acts as Peter's farewell speech. He begins by offering a final challenge that Jesus' followers must be people who never stop growing. And then this is followed by two final warnings about a growing number of corrupt teachers who are leading Christians in these church communities astray. First, by their corrupt way of life, and second, by their distorted theology. Throughout the letter, Peter is countering accusations made by these teachers against himself and the other apostles. And Peter's goal is to restore confidence and order to these church communities. So Peter opens by reminding these churches that through Jesus, God has invited people to become a participant in his own divine nature. That is, to share in God's own eternal life and love, which is mind-blowing. And it requires a lifelong response. To receive this gift means a commitment to developing the same character traits that mark God's own divine nature. Peter lists here seven traits to strive for. And the final one encompasses and crowns all of the others, it's love, which according to Jesus means devoting oneself to the well-being of others no matter their response or the cost. To love, according to Peter, is to share in God's own life. Peter then states the letter's purpose. It's going to act as a memorial of his teaching that can be passed on to later generations because he's not going to be around to give it much longer in person. So before he dies, he wants to address these objections and accusations being made by the teachers who distort Jesus' teaching and that of the apostles. 
So Peter first addresses an accusation repeated by the skeptics present and future, namely that he and the apostles just made up all of this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead and king of the world. Jesus isn't really going to come back one day. So Peter offers his eyewitness testimony of the powerful moment of Jesus' transformation on the mountain. Remember the story in Mark chapter 9. The apostles saw Jesus exalted as king, and his resurrection means that he's alive as king and will return to rescue our world one day. And so the future return of Jesus to bring God's kingdom, this will fulfill what all the ancient scriptures have been pointing to all along. The words of the Old Testament prophets. They're not fabricated fantasies. Rather, through these human words of scripture and through the human Jesus, God himself has spoken to us. Peter then moves on to address the threats raised by corrupt leaders in the church, and he focuses on more objections that they raise. So first, these teachers deny the idea of a final reckoning when God's going to hold all people accountable for their choices. And this denial is what conveniently allows the teachers to ignore Jesus' teaching about money and sex, because they're making tons of profit by teaching in the churches, not to mention the fact that they're sleeping around. But Peter reminds the readers that God can and will meet rebellion with his justice. He recalls three ancient examples when God did this. He first mentions the story about the sons of God in Genesis 6 as it was interpreted in a popular Jewish work of the time called First Enoch. First Enoch says the sons of God are rebellious angels who crossed the line and slept with women, earning God's judgment. Peter then brings up the story of the ancient flood and then the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, there was a rebellion that led to divine judgment. But, Peter says, God was always faithful to deliver his people, and he uses the story of Lot to provide an example. Peter then connects these ancient stories to the teacher's corrupt way of life. They too are after money and sex, they despise God's authority, and they lead other people to think that God doesn't care about moral decisions. He says they teach a message of Christian freedom and use it as a license to do whatever they want. This is why Peter's going to bring up Paul's letters later on in chapter 3. It appears that these teachers have distorted Paul's message of liberation in Christ. But that's not the kind of freedom Paul meant. And Peter makes clear that these teachers are not really free. In reality, they're slaves to their bodily impulses. And the fact that they're Christians makes it even more tragic because knowing Jesus' teaching makes them doubly accountable. They have become pitiful examples of the ancient proverb about a dog returning to its vomit and a washed pig going back to the mud. Peter then addresses the reasoning behind the teacher's denial of the final reckoning. They say generations of God's people keep coming and passing away without seeing the fulfillment of their hopes. Where is this promised return of Jesus? Peter responds by showing how short-sighted this objection is. Look around, he says, at this remarkable universe that we inhabit. The fact that we exist at all means that at some moment in the past, God's word intervened in a dramatic way to bring something out of nothing and to bring order out of chaos, and he can do so again. And so the real question is, why is God taking so long? But Peter reminds us that our human conception of time is extremely limited. The long expanses of time through which God works don't fit neatly into the framework of our very short lives. These long amounts of time are actually a sign of God's patience because each generation is offered the chance to recognize its own selfishness, to humble itself, and repent before God's generous grace. And God's grace will bring the story to a close on the day of the Lord.
Here Peter draws upon the prophetic poetry of Isaiah and Zephaniah, who describe the day of God's justice as a consuming fire. Peter says, the heavens will pass away and the stoicheia will melt by fire. This is a Greek word that could refer to the elements, in which case it means the dissolution of the material universe, or more likely, it refers to heavenly bodies, in other words, the stars. That's what this word means in Isaiah chapter 34, where Peter is quoting from. And in that case, this line is a metaphor about the sky being peeled back, so to speak, before the God who sees all. And so this is why Peter says the day of the Lord will result in the earth and all its works being exposed. The ultimate purpose of God's consuming justice is not to scrap the material universe. Rather, it's to expose evil and injustice and remove it so that a new kind of heavens and earth can emerge, one that is permeated with righteousness, full of God's love and people who know and love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Peter concludes by saying this is the true Christian hope that Jesus and all the apostles have been announcing, including Paul, whose writings can be misunderstood if you rip them out of context, but all the apostles are on the same page. And so Peter ends his final address to the church. Now, the tone of 2 Peter, it feels really intense, but his passion comes from a firm conviction that God loves this world and he's determined to rescue it through Jesus. And so this means that God's love must confront and deal with the sin and injustice that ruins his beloved world. And in God's own time, he will do so, opening up a new future for humanity and for the universe itself. And so 2 Peter has a wide, expansive vision of hope for the whole world, and it challenges us to examine our everyday lives. That's what the second letter of Peter is all about. All right. I hope that was helpful. It's a lot to take in, but I hope you get a little bit of a gist of uh, the book and then also where we'll be going in the next few weeks. So what was the danger? Call it out. Corruption, false teaching, false teachers, false prophets, yes. Okay, so the next three weeks, we're going to have, we're going to do a little bit on false teaching each week, Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, let's just clarify, the danger was false teachers who come to take advantage of the people in the churches Peter was writing to by twisting the scriptures to suit their own agenda. Okay, that's just my quick summary, but before we go too much farther, I want to tell you a little bit about Peter. Now, you might know some stuff about Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. There was three, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be in the, always close to Jesus, and they were there when all the action seemed to happen. And, um, but a couple things about Peter, that uh, stories in particular, that came to mind when I was thinking about him. And one is found in Luke 22, 31 to 32. Uh, Peter's being told by Jesus he's going to deny him three times, but before he tells him that, That might be a familiar story to you. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny you ever knew me. Three times. It happens. It comes true. But before that happens, before Jesus even says that to him, he says this. He said, Simon, Simon, that's another name for Peter. Satan, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. What sifting is basically to separate the the wheat kernels from the chaff or the straw from the useful part. So is there anything good in Peter? Satan's asked to find that out, right? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That when everything's been sifted, what will remain 
is the kernel or the seed of your faith. That will, will be preserved. And when you have turned back, so after you've turned away, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Long before Peter was the leader we see here, Jesus spoke to Peter and told him about a dark chapter that was to come in his life, including a huge spiritual attack. But he was praying for him, to not, not only for his personal faith to survive, but also for him to have something to give to strengthen others. And it seemed like Peter really embraced that role when the whole story happened and it all came around and Jesus restored him after he denied him and all of those things, Peter seemed to really embrace that role. In fact, that's what Peter seems to be saying in 2 Peter 1.12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Now, I read you two different little passages there. When you've turned back, Peter, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter says, I'm always going to remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now know. Uh, one of the neat things I learned this week while studying this passage is the word for strengthen your brothers and the word established in the truth, strengthened and established is the exact same Greek word. So when he's establishing people in the truth, he is strengthening them. Now, in my house, um, I have two boys who are growing in strength and putting on more weight. In fact, uh, they're getting pretty close to what my weight is, and so uh, they feel more and more courageous to take on the alpha dog. And occasionally they will attack me when I have no warning and just suddenly I have to defend myself. Um, I used to be I could take on both of them easily, and now it's not that easy anymore to even uh, stand up with one of them. So where they love to attack me is in the kitchen. Because the kitchen has a slippery linoleum floor, and when we have our socks on in the house, it destabilizes dad, right? So you can attack dad quick, he's, off, he's slipping, and then you got a good chance at you know, winning the upper hand. But you know what? I've sort of caught on to that. And so if I think it's one of those you know, afternoons where they've got a little more testosterone than normal, then I take off my socks. And when they attack me, I stand firm. And it's so fun because in that moment, they think that they're going to destabilize me and I'll go slipping all over the floor. But if I have grip and if I'm firmly established, then I'm strengthened. See those two words? Firmly established and strengthened. And I'm not easily pushed around the kitchen. In fact, I'm the one who does the influencing of where we're going to go. Now, I hope they're not watching this because now I've lost one of my last few old man tricks and I'll have to come up with another one. Anyhow... But that's what Peter wanted for the people he wrote to. He wanted them to be strengthened. And by strengthening, he meant, I want you to be firmly established. I want you to have a grip on the truth. I want you to be established in the truth. So that when someone comes, a false teacher, when a lie comes, when a deceit comes, I want you to be able to stand. I want you to be strengthened in the truth. Now, the other story that comes up because of, uh, about Peter that in my mind is, is Peter and John, after Jesus' resurrection, and they're already starting to lead this early young church, is one day they go to the temple to pray, and they run into a blind, or no, a crippled man, a man who doesn't, can't walk, and he asks if they have any money. And they say, silver and gold, we don't have any, but what we do have, we'll give to you. And basically reached out, grabbed his hand, pulled him to his feet, and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he did. You can, uh, that's Acts 3, verse 6, where that comes from. So 
Peter is coming to the end of his days. And I think there's a bit of an echo in, that, in this story, in that story, because he's coming to the end of his days, and what does he have to leave to the church? He knows that probably soon he will lose his life in the persecutions that are happening under Nero in Rome. So what does he have to leave behind to the church? Well, not a lot of silver and gold. That hasn't changed. And so if you don't have a lot of silver and gold to leave to your kids or whoever you might leave it behind to, don't be discouraged. You're the same as, as Peter, right? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I want to give. And what Peter has is, is more valuable. He has a strong faith in Jesus, and he wants to give it and its benefits to others. So let me ask you, what are you leaving behind? What are you leaving behind? The reality is that you might not leave a lot of valuables, but it's, mo- it's not, mostly not about what valuables you have, it's what you value. Do you know what the reading of your will, a very small group probably, will find out about your valuables? But at your funeral, a much larger group will find out what you valued. And that's the thing that Peter wanted to leave behind. Peter says this in the next few verses, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. What an incredible goal. I'm going to make every effort so that after I'm dead, you'll always be able to remember these things. Now, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that? It seems like Peter's focus on making the things he wanted to pass on memorable was Repetition. You see that in things. I'm refreshing your memory. I'm reminding you. I'm saying it again, just in case you didn't get it the first time. I'm saying it. Do, are there sayings that your parents uh, had that they said again and again and again? Uh, it, it's very interesting to think about the things that repetition might be one of the keys to helping people be strengthened after you're gone. So think a little bit about what you're saying repeatedly. Uh, And this isn't just a thing for parents. This is for all of us because we're all called to strengthen those in the church. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to play a role in strengthening others. So think about the things that you say repeatedly. Are they words of fear? Are they words of worry? Are they words of distrust? Or what are they? Are they words of greed? Or are they words of faith? Are they words of faith? Maybe you need to, to uh, change some of the things that you're saying because you realize, I wouldn't want, th- this thing won't strengthen anybody after I'm gone. I should be saying things that, are, that will strengthen somebody. So Peter's focus was on the repetition of key truths. I think about some of the friends in my life in the last few weeks and what I've seen in their lives. Uh, Doug Sigelko, he was, he, he's a good friend and pastor uh, here at Hillcrest, and he is writing his memoirs. He's been doing this through the COVID season. So he's talking about himself as a kid and, and in his life in Guatemala and then back here in Canada. And um, as he's been doing that, then he's been reading those chapters of his memoirs over Zoom to his kids and his grandkids. What a great idea. It's, he's using the power of story. So throughout those stories, there's probably lots of things about his favorite food and places he went and people he met, but I can bet you in there, he's talking also about his faith and what, how Jesus changed his life and the adventure he went on and continues to go on with Jesus to this day. 
I think about my father-in-law. He used the power of story just a few weeks ago. We were at his place, and it was his birthday, but also his spiritual birthday, because he got saved at age 31 exactly on his birthday. So it's double. And so he told us the story. And one of the things he, he said, I'll just share one bit. There's so, it was all awesome. One thing he said that after he had come to believe in Jesus, he woke up and he experienced the power of a brand new affection in his life for other people. He actually loved people more. And that was a surprising development in his life. Now, if you met my father-in-law, you'd know why I say that I think he's one of the most loving men I know. Period. End stop. He is. But if if he hadn't told his story to me and to my kids, we might have thought, well, that's just a person with incredible character. No, he told us a story that before Jesus and after Jesus, there's a dramatic difference in how he loved people. And so, that, is, that story strengthens us because it doesn't point to his greatness, it points to the greatness of Jesus. And I believe Peter wanted to do that. Not point to Peter was great. Most of the stories about Peter encourage you because he was such a failure. But they remind you that the difference maker in Peter's life, the transformation he experienced as well, was because of Jesus. Also, a couple years ago, I was part of Gary Lewis's funeral. He was a beloved member and leader in this church for many years. And what did his kids talk about? Silver, gold, farmland? Nope. They talked about getting up early in the morning and they'd find Dad on his knees at the couch. Or they'd find Dad worshiping with his hands lifted in the air. The power of, well, in this case, maybe not just story, but example. Right? So repetition might be the key. Telling your story especially your faith story, in a way that Jesus gets the credit and you don't steal the, ho- the light from him. And uh, an example. Those are just a, f- a few I might want to recommend. If you, but here's the one I would say, though. It's not just about saying better or a strategy. I would say pray for a strategy if you really want to influence others to strengthen them in their faith. Ask God to give you a strategy. But I would also say this. I think sometimes we go trying to influence others before we have allowed God to influence us. And I'm reminded of when I was coming in high school to visit my brother. He was at a Bible college, and uh, he took me aside after a worship session and teaching session. He took me aside to a room, just the two of us, and uh, he started to say how sorry he was for the way he treated me when I was younger. When When we lived, you know, he was still in high school. He was apologizing to me without my mom in the room. This had never happened before. My mom always rode shotgun over making sure we apologized to each other. And here was my brother apologizing to me. And I thought, he's not doing this for mom. This must be God. This must be God. It really struck me that he's apologizing. It must be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was a dramatic thing. I thought, wow, God is really moving in this place. My brother Dave is apologizing to me because of the Holy Spirit in his life. If you want to influence others in their faith, now, I want to tell you why I tell you that, that story, because my brother Dave offered me lots of advice about how to live my teenage years based on his successes or failures. And I disregarded most of it because I wanted to live my own life and I was rebellious and difficult. But when he apologized to me, I took notice. 
because I thought, God is doing something in his life. It reminds me of another story. I'd gone to um, help facilitate a set-free retreat in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, a couple of years ago. And I got talking to this couple there, and they said, For, we've been worried sick about our kids, and uh, we're always trying to influence them and, and uh, you know, for God and, and, and good ways, and, and we're always trying to get them on the right track, and we're always trying to, you know, somehow have some say in their life. And, 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 you know, they're really good intentions, really good intentions. And they said, but this last season, we've just sort of shifted gears and we just thought we really need to work on us and our relationship with God. And we've just really allowed God to have a lot of leeway in, in our lives. We were saying yes to God in all these areas that maybe we've ignored for a long time. And they said, you know what's the strangest thing out of this? This is the season where our kids have come back to God. I think they maybe noticed that we were finally willing to surrender areas of our lives that we had never surrendered to God before. And so it was the work that Jesus was doing in them that became compelling. So if you're discouraged and you're saying, well, I don't know if I can strengthen anyone for God because my life isn't a great example or you know, I blew it with my kids if we're talking about kids or I blew it with my friends or neighbors or whatever, I want to encourage you uh, it's never too late for God to do a work in your heart. In fact, ask him to do a work in your heart. Ask him to put his heart in your heart. Ask him to transform you. You know, we're going on a journey this fall as a church. We're going to go through a teaching series we're calling just simply Believe. But it's got three aspects to it. First, it's like talking about what do Christians believe? What are the basic beliefs that Christians believe? It's really important to know what those are. But Christian life isn't just about believing something. It's about turning those beliefs into action. So then we're going to go take it up a notch from not just what Christians believe, but what do Christians do? What are the things that correspond to these beliefs? And then that isn't the full picture either because what Christians believe and then out of that what they do shapes who they become. So there's a third layer to this. And we want to see lives transformed. Not just that you'll give mental assent that this is true or that's true, but that those things actually affect your day-to-day life and affect who you are becoming. So I would say it's a great time if you say, man, I'm worried that I can't, who's going to look at my life and think that Jesus was great or that I valued him? It's not too late. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God, or tell God you're willing to follow. There's maybe areas you haven't been willing, and now you will. Tell him that. You're willing to, to see a transformation in your life. And maybe you'll end up like my brother, apologizing to somebody or asking forgiveness. And they'll be like, what is going on? Or you'll tell someone you love, you love them and you've never told them that in their entire life. And they're going to go, where did this come from? You might tell someone, I'm proud of you. you. After you've prayed and sought God and thought, what is there to be proud of in their life? And you finally hit it, and then you go tell them. And you say, I just want to tell you I'm proud of you in this area. And they're going to say, what are you on? This isn't you. And you say, yeah, I know it's not me. I've been asking God to do a work in my heart. And out of that came this apology or this expression of love or this statement that I'm, I'm proud of you or I'm for you. It's not too late. It's not too late. This isn't just for older people to consider. I've already said that. But every Christian should make, like Peter said, every effort to see others firmly established in the truth so that they will be strong and immovable and less likely to slide around in their thinking or be deceived. 
when false teaching comes along. So let's talk about the first big accusation of the false teachers. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The accusation from the false teachers is that the disciples of Jesus made up the story about Jesus coming again in power. Now, they had other accusations, but this is one. This is just made up. Jesus is coming again? Yeah, right. You just made that up. It's a cleverly devised story. And Peter said, it is not that because we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter tells us in particular what historical event has given him such confidence in Christ's power and second coming. And it's namely this. Peter, James, and John experienced the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, what is that? Let me just read the next few verses. It said, he, talking about Jesus, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. It's the same kind of language that God the Father used at Jesus' baptism. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven and when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So they're saying, we, we were there. We saw with our own eyes, we heard with our own ears that Jesus is God. Now Peter had had a personal revelation of that when Jesus asked his disciples and said, who do men say that I am? Then eventually, who do you say that I am? And Jesus by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, blurted out, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter already sort of knew some of this. But then he saw Jesus transfigured. In other words, transformed. Here's Jesus, who would have looked like you and me. You know, a regular person. But on the mountain, he didn't look like that. His glory and majesty was revealed. Can you imagine what it was like to have a mountain just... radiating with the glory of God and the person that you walked with and you ate with and you went fishing with, I don't know what you did with Jesus. Suddenly, you realize he's divine. So he says, we were eyewitnesses of this. And an eyewitness is a great word to use because it tells the people who are listening, you know what? You don't believe this? Go ask other people. Go ask other people. That was a wonderful thing about these. This was maybe 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm giving you a ballpark. I'm not, don't, we, nobody knows exactly. But this is in their lifetime. Just go back and check. You know, a lot of things we know about historical figures are not based on what we know from in their lifetime. Right? Almost everything we know about Julius Caesar was because he wrote memoirs like Doug Sigelko about himself. And almost everything we know about him is because we've read his book. So, and nobody doubts it. Everybody says, yeah, I think that that's probably true. But it's all based on what he wrote about himself. Jesus was different. Jesus didn't write anything. People wrote about him. You had the disciples writing about him. You had historians writing about him. You had people who hated the Christians writing about him. You had people who weren't believers at all, indifferent towards Christians writing about him. And so you find out, yes, he lived. Yes, he died on a cross. Yes, it was under Pontius Pilate. Yes, in that time frame. All these facts about his life. It's, it was, it's not cleverly devised stories. We don't, our faith is not based on some mythological thing that was cooked up. It's based on a historical event. 
or his several historical events. And for Peter, he's telling you, I was an eyewitness not just of Jesus' resurrection, which is huge, but of his transfiguration. In other words, I saw the teaser trailer for the end, for the final movie. Isn't that exciting when you're waiting for a movie to come out? And boy, have we been waiting for movies to come out lately. (laughs) But you're waiting for a movie to come out, and then the trailer comes out, and it just gets you pumped up because it's so good. Well, this was what the Mount of Transfiguration was. It was like, here's Jesus in his majesty. Here's what he... It's like, he's going to come again. And when he comes again, it won't be Jesus, the guy who looks like your fishing buddy. It will be Jesus, the majestic, in all of his glory. So he's saying, I saw the teaser for the final appearance. I saw what we're, going to, we're all going to experience. And so he says, no, there's no way I could ever say, I could ever not believe that Jesus is coming again when Jesus said that he would die and come back to life. If anyone promises to do that, and then they actually do, you tend to believe what they say after that. And so the resurrection was a big part of it and the transfiguration as well. So he, he gives first the evidence of being an eyewitness of the transfiguration. But then he gives a second one. And this is in verse 19. Read it to you. It says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Ooh, there's lots in this verse. The prophetic message, so the Old Testament, or in your Bible, is full of prophecies about the Messiah yet to come. About 300 of them, I think, is what the last, one of the state stats I read uh, this week. So, and Jesus came and he fulfilled the how the Messiah would come, the where the Messiah would come, the when, all those different things. Jesus came and fulfilled all of those things. So Peter not only says, we saw what Jesus will look like when he comes in the second coming, he's also saying, the second coming, which is also talked about in the Old Testament, he says it's comp- it was completely reliable when it came to predicting Jesus. And he fulfilled all those prophecies. So we can trust it in predicting the second coming. In fact, he goes on to say, you will do well to pay attention to it. You'll be, do well to pay attention to the Word of God, to the Scriptures that God has given us, as to a light in a dark place. The Scripture will be a light to you in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. I think in this last number of months, a lot of people have felt some level of darkness. Maybe just like a foreboding shadow over their lives. Maybe it's the darkness of disease that gets talked about all the time. Maybe it's the darkness of political manipulations that seem to be happening and who knows what's happening. Maybe it's the darkness of of governments unfriendly to Christian worldview. Maybe it's the darkness of just sort of a bullying atmosphere or an intimidating atmosphere. Maybe it's the, the darkness of economic struggle. The world is screaming, be afraid, look at the darkness. But Peter's advice is that you will do well to pay attention to the light of Scripture. This dark passage is a short one. Our lives are but a breath. This dark passage is a short one. And the day, the the dawn is coming. The dawn is coming. And I love that little analogy in there about the morning star. Do you know what the morning star is? 
The morning star is the third brightest um, light source in the sky, right? Number one, sun. Number two, moon. Number three, morning star. But it's only light in the sky in the morning or the evening. Right now, at this point in Saskatchewan, it's a morning star. It's not an evening star. And why is it a morning or evening star? Because it's reflected light. Because the morning star is not a star. It's a planet. It's Venus. The planet Venus... It's 25, they say 25 times at certain cycles, 25 times brighter than any other star in the sky. But it's only, it's sort of short-lived because it only shines just before dawn or dusk or after dusk or before dawn, when it's dark. The great thing about it being called a morning star is the fact that it's a precursor to the dawn. You can't see it. It's so dark. It'll be two in the morning. There's no light yet, no birds chirping yet. And you're like, It's dark, but you see the morning star emerge, and you go, oh, dawn's coming. And so from 2 in the morning to about 5 in the morning here in Saskatchewan around this time of year, the morning star is telling you, this darkness, it's not forever. This darkness, it will be replaced with glorious light all around us. That's what the morning star tells us. Well, this is the promise of Jesus coming. When the, the, the false teachers are saying, no, no, just abandon that thought that Jesus is coming again in power. And Peter says, no, 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 no. He will come. The dawn, will, the day will dawn. It's another way of saying that glorious light of God's presence will be all around us. And the morning star will rise in your heart. And Jesus is referenced two times in Revelation as the morning star. So it's like Jesus around you, Jesus within you. Glory, glory, glory. It's just, I wish I had words to put it together for you, but it's just an amazing concept. So pay attention to the light of Scripture. It's going to get you through the dark time. But this time is not long. The, the glory of Jesus appearing is yet to come. So Second Peter 1.20 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Now this, I'm reading it in the NIV, and some of the other translations say it a little differently. Let me read you, uh, I think I'll read you the New American Standard Bible. It says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So, scholars have tried hard to figure out what this verse is exactly saying and they've come out either one side or the other usually when they're trying to translate it in from greek into english is it talking about the fact that so one concept is this the prophets who spoke it wasn't just their great ins- it wasn't their insight or their interpretation of the times and the events and the seasons that we've got on paper no we have something very different. In fact, I'll, I'll read you the next verse, which helps us to see what we have. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's one way of, looking, uh, of interpreting what is the original intent of the author, that probably, this is the one I lean towards, probably he was just basically saying, the Bible that you have, the scriptures that you have, they aren't just like, a collection of smart guys who put together a library of things, it's, they were led by the Holy Spirit. Human authors penned the message so that human readers could understand it. And they used local phrases and figures of speech and examples, all in the common language of the people they lived again, but they wrote only as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
It wasn't because they were the smartest guys in the room. It was because they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So in the end, we have this amazing result. Scripture is amazing. It's a book that relates to the human mind, but at the same time, it reveals the mind of God. So some commentators have gone that way where they've said, I think that what Peter's saying right now is he's saying that you can trust Scripture because it wasn't just the smartest guys in the room with their own opinions. It was the Spirit of God moving them to communicate a message, but in the language of the day, so that it was accessible for people. So it's wonderful. The second thought is, is, is more in with the NIV. The NIV... Um, or no, sorry, the NASB does the second thought. But know that, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So, so what about on the other end? If you're the reader of Scripture and you say, well, what this means to me is... Now, you ever do that and ever have a conversation like that? You're explaining something to someone and they say, well, what your words mean to me is... You're like, well, that's not what I meant. Well, but that's what it means to me. Well, that's totally maddening because you're like, well, I was using words to get a message across to you and I know exactly what that message was, but clearly there's a gap here and it does, it's no comfort to me at all that it means something to you different than what it means to me because it's not true. That's not what I meant. <laughs> you really shouldn't do that to God. Like take what he says and go, well, I'm just going to sort of twist it enough so that it aligns with what I think. In fact, that's what Peter's going after, and we'll see that in the next couple chapters. He's going after these leaders who are twisting the word of God so that it aligns with their agenda, what they wanted to say. And so, some of the commentators have really leaned it that way. The prophecy of Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation. It's not just that I have, you know, I I see Scripture and I pick and choose what I want. No, I need to really reckon with what was God trying to communicate? And to do that, you need the context of it. You need, the, you need to understand and, and really search out the scriptures. It actually takes a fair amount of work sometimes. But it's worth it because we want to know what he's saying to us. Not to twist his words so that it says what we want it to say. So those are, those are two things that, that could be drawn out of here. And I think they're both true. I lean toward the first one that is the actual original message because of verse 21. But the second one works pretty well too because in chapter 2 and chapter 3 you get to the false teachers who twist the scripture. So, where are we going to end here today? I'm going to end right away here. Let me give you my three takeaways. Peter made it his great effort to put in every effort he could to make sure that people were strengthened in their faith. For you, you might think, well, man, I, I could barely walk in my own faith, on my own two feet. You know what? That's where Peter was at the beginning. But God took him on a journey, a really interesting journey, and some of it was dark, and some of it was difficult. But in the end, he made him the kind of leader who could strengthen and establish others. I think God's, got a, God's heart is for you to do, be able to do that. I don't know at what level. I don't know with what people. We're all very unique, and God's going to use us in very unique ways. But I think God wants you to strengthen people and leave that behind. 
So I think you should pray in response to that. I think I'm praying in response to that. God, how? Give me a strategy. Tell me how. Tell me who. And what are the things that are going to speak the loudest if you change them in me? (laughs) I'm going to say yes to your transformation in my heart because that's the thing, that example, that's the thing that's that's going to speak loud. And the second thing is the surety, the absolute surety of the second coming of Christ. That's what Peter was writing about. Peter, the eyewitness, Peter, the guy who'd seen how all the scriptures line up with Jesus, said, you know what? Jesus was right about who he was. Jesus was right about his death and resurrection. And Jesus told me he's going to prepare a place for us and then he will come again. So I'm taking that to the bank. I'm taking that to the bank, that Jesus is coming again. I'm not going to doubt that. I'm not going to shrink from that. That's going to be the hope. And as dark as these days are going to be, I'm going to trust that they're going to be enveloped. The dawn is going to come. The morning star is going to rise in our hearts, and it's all going to change someday. I'm trusting in that. And out of that, knowing that that's coming, a day of, of everything being sort of wrapped up in, in, in human history up to this point, of God coming in his holiness, of God coming in his justice and his purity, and God coming in his glory. I want to live for him these days. I don't want to get wrapped up in minor pursuits like the false teachers and sex and money and all those things. I don't want to make those things my, my greatest goal. I want following Jesus to be my greatest goal. And then the last thing is just that phrase, you will do well to pay attention to Scripture. <laughs> You really do well. Say, I've read it once. I've read through the Bible once. Or, yeah, I, I suppose it's good. You know what? It'll just be a light for you in darkness. And when you're in a dark season, like some of you might be in right now, there's an incredible thing of just coming to God's word, coming humbly, because God's word, we don't measure it. It measures us. But allowing it to be that light in our lives, so when, I, so when all of the things in your world are saying, be afraid, the darkness is so great, you have Christians who are firmly established in the truth, who aren't afraid, aren't given over to that spirit of fear, and they're walking with confidence. And those are the kind of people that could strengthen others. That's what God wants for you and me. Would you stand with me? Lord, we just we come before you humbly. We know that there's lots of areas in our lives that are uh, they need some renovating for sure. They need some work, some transformation. And Lord, you you have bigger plans than just our own transformation. You've you've put us in a body. You've put, give, given us a spiritual family, and you've uh, your intention is that waves of blessing would flow out from our own obedience to you to others. So, Lord, we want to just say yes to you in the area that you're calling us to be transformed, in the area that you're calling us to surrender, in the area you're calling us to say yes to you, we want to just say yes. Would you lead? Would you guide? You have the right to command our obedience, so we shouldn't uh, hold back in those ways. And so, Lord, help us. Lord, help us to be... uh, to be transformed. And Lord, 
If there's ways in which you want us to interact with others or, or to help others, to strengthen others, would you show us those things? Would you prompt us by the Holy Spirit to step out? And I, I know it's always going to feel like risk in certain, in certain scenarios. So, Lord, would you help us to embrace that you are with us in the risk and that you are not going to let us... Uh, um, if we're called to, to do something, you're going to provide in that situation. So, Lord, let us walk this walk of faith especially in this week to come. And Lord, would you protect the church? Would you protect the church from falsehood, from lies, from false teaching? Lord, we want to we follow you uh, in truth and not be uh, pushed aside to something that's, that's not true. So we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you're the great shepherd and that you've got lots of under-shepherds in this room who, who long to be just like you are in the way that you care for people. So we bless your name. We honor you today. Help us this week in your name. Amen.